If you have a Bible, then, if you turn to 2 Timothy 2. So we're going to title today's message, Grace to Fight. Actually, we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 15, and take it through chapter 2, verse 7. Paul's getting ready to die when he writes this. This is the last epistle that he wrote before his head was taken off. So we begin in 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, and he says, writing to Timothy, This you know, Timothy, that all they which are in Asia were turned away from me. They deserted me, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. Uh, the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. And you therefore, because of what I just said, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. And you therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, because no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier." And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully? The husbandman that laboreth must first be partaker of the fruits. And Paul says, consider what I say. And if you do that, think about these things, then the Lord will give you understanding in all things. And Father, I ask that we'll just open all of our hearts. I ask that whether I speak this well or not, Lord, that your message will come through by your spirit and that we will have hope and courage to fight the battles that you have ahead of us these days and know that you will be with us and you will give us the grace we need. And I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. So, you know, in the past month or so, we've taught several messages. We've kind of gotten away from the book of Joshua. And the recurring theme was this, that God had given them the land. Is before they ever stepped in Canaan, he told them every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon. He says, before they'd ever gotten there, he says, every place that you step on when you get over there, that have I given you. He's saying, I've already given it to you. I mean, that's what faith's all about, isn't it? Seeing that things have already been given to us. And so he'd given them the land, but who was going to have to possess their possessions? Was God going to do that for them? He wasn't going to do that Form. So, in other words, the land was theirs, it was guaranteed, but there was going to be a fight. We talked about that. There was going to be a real physical battle. There was going to be strategy. There was going to be swords. There was going to be sweat. And there was going to be shed blood. And so, the promised inheritance that he said, it's all yours, was hinged on what, though? It hinged on their willingness to fight. So if they laid down their swords and shields and refused to fight, they'd suffer the consequences. They wouldn't get what God had promised them. So I was in contact, it's kind of the motivation for this message with another brother this week, and he mentioned something that just really struck a chord with me, which is why we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And he quoted 2 Timothy 3-4 to that we just read, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what he said in essence was that every Christian without exception is a soldier. That's every Christian sitting in this room. That's every Christian really everywhere. And when you sign up to be a soldier, guess what goes with the package? You're going to encounter the enemy, aren't you, in one form of another. And if you're a soldier and you encounter the enemy, what are you expected to do? Fight. So one thing I never understood and I never thought was ethical in the least, several years back, you'd hear a lot of this on the news and the talk shows back when I had time to listen to that kind of stuff, people that would join the U.S. military with the understanding that the government was either going to pay their education, give them this huge signing bonus, they did all this because at the time we weren't in battle. And they're thinking, well, you know, they're going to spend their time X number of days in the service, you know, and they're just going to be giving out water, building huts and giving sandwiches to people in Haiti. And lo and behold, we get in some battles and they're going to be deployed to fight. And all of a sudden, these people become conscientious objectors. <laughs> well, I'm not going to fight. I don't want to fight. And it's like, wait a minute here. You signed up 
This wasn't in fine print. It signed up that you are giving your life, you're willing, and you're going to fight for the government. And we're going to give you this as an incentive. And you're saying, oh, I like that. They like the incentive, but they didn't like the result of that. They're like, hey, I gambled that I would just be handing out sandwiches. And I wasn't planning on actually shooting a gun and being shot at. So I'm a conscientious objector. I'm like, whoa. But to bring that analogy home, you know, there is a lot of people. They sign up to be a Christian thinking their life's just going to be a bowl of cherries. They do. And they can just be good people, pay their taxes, pay their bills, and go to heaven without engaging in any warfare. And that the gospel is just, well, look, I heard it was good news. Love, joy, peace forevermore. And you're talking about fighting? Warfare? Sacrifice? Come on. I didn't know that. <laughs> and what are they? They end up being stony ground hearers. Because here's what it says about the stony ground hearers in Matthew 13. He that hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, good news. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately it says he falls away, becomes a conscientious objector. But I think a lot of the problem is, is with the recruiters, so to speak, because they don't present the terms of the commander in chief in the way he did. Because here's what Jesus said in Luke 14 to the recruits of his day. This is familiar. If any man come to me, wants to join up and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yea, and his own life also. The commander-in-chief says, you can't join my army. You can't join it. You cannot. It's impossible for you to be my disciple. And whosoever, he went on to say, that's whosoever. Whosoever wants to come and sign on the line and does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. And I'm saying it's from cover to cover, isn't it? The military types and analogies in the Bible. And... It clearly teaches that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you commit yourself to following him, you are signing up to be a soldier. And in doing that, we all need to listen to that, we are pledging to fight in the Lord's army. And you are not going to be soldiers that just hand out sandwiches and water and build huts. Now that may be part of it. And that may have been part of being in the military. But listen, we're guaranteed we're going to be in battles and fighting and fighting for each other. And we can't go AWOL on that, according to the Bible. Because we're called and can expect to meet and engage the enemy. And here's the thing we need to know about our enemy, if you don't already. He doesn't fight fair. And he is not easily discouraged. He doesn't get tired easily. He's a spirit. So... As soldiers in the Lord's army, we are commanded to march in. Isn't this what Joshua was all about? And aren't we commanded to do the same, to march and to take into enemy territory, commanded to march in there and take back what he has taken from us. He's the usurper, what he's stolen from us. I liked what this brother said. We are not victims. And sometimes it's easy to have that mentality. Things aren't going right. Your finances are collapsing. You're not feeling well. Your marriage is whatever. Your kids are, and you feel like you're a victim. And we're not victims. Any form of attack that the enemy is bringing your way, the question you have to say to yourself is any trial, any affliction, whatever it is, am I a victim? Do you know what the definition of a victim is? This is out of the Oxford Revised Dictionary. I mean, it's real English. And here's what it defines a victim as, a person who has come to feel helpless and passive in the face of misfortune. A person who has come to feel helpless and passive because all this misfortune has come my way. <laughs> I would ask the question, where is that in the Bible, that, that we're victims in that sense? Has God called us to wilt and be passive in the face of an attack from the enemy? Is that what he's called us to do? Are we helpless victim? Is that one of the promises in the Bible? And so here's the question. Do we please God by laying down our weapons 
and refusing to fight. And that's what Paul's saying to Timothy here in verse 1. Look what he says there. He says, thou therefore, or you therefore, as it has been said many times, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's therefore. And generally, when you have a therefore, what's it doing? It's referring back to what was just previously said. They managed to start this chapter two here, and really he's referring back to what he had said at the end of chapter one. That's why we read verses 15 to 18. And so what he's telling Timothy here, Paul is, he said, I've just told you about those people in Asia. He's saying, you therefore, based on, look, I told you about the people in Asia. Look what it says in verse 15. He said, this you know, Timothy, that all they which are in Asia did what? Be turned away from me. That word means deserted, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. They've turned away from him. And he notes those two people specifically. So apparently he's naming them because they must have been close to him. They must have been considered faithful brethren. And he could have used their support. And he's like, all of them left me, but man, even these two left me. Gives them by name. If you look back over just a couple chapters in this book, look over in 4.16. Look what he says there. And Paul's going through it. He is a man. And people get in trouble, and you're by yourself. You need some support. And Paul's no different than anyone else. Because look what it says in 4.16. He says, in my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. And here as he's got a good heart about it, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Verse 17, he says, well, notwithstanding all of that, at least somebody stood with him. He says, the Lord stood with me and did what? Strengthened me. The Lord stood with him. He said, but everybody else was gone. It had to be tough on him. And so Paul is painting this picture here of these people in Asia in verse 15. These Christians that are just, they should be with him. They've committed themselves. They signed on the dotted line, so to speak, to be with the Lord. And they laid down their arms and fled. They went AWOL. And he tells Timothy, everybody deserted me in Asia. Even the two I thought I could count on. And he says the only exception was Onesiphorus. And he says about that guy, he says he was different though. He was different. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. It says, in fact, he laid down his life for me by coming often and refreshing me. And you see that over there. Look what it says. The Lord have mercy, verse 16, under the house on Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me. And he wasn't ashamed, not like the other ones. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. It was no small thing back then in that time to be associated with a criminal because the authorities see you're looking this guy out. They're thinking, man, you got sympathies with this guy. You're associated with him. You probably ought to be in prison, too. And that would happen a lot of times. And chains and imprisonment back then were a disgrace. It was a disgraceful thing to be in prison and bound with chains and accused of a crime. But Paul swore his chains. He says, I am not ashamed of these chains. Because they're only on me for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of them. I'm wearing them as a badge of honor. But other people, hey, they fled and they were ashamed. Look what he says at the end of verse 16. Onesiphorus, it's getting easier to say the more I say it. It says, he refreshed me. And what does it say about him at the end of verse 16? He was not ashamed of my chain. He wasn't ashamed. He's going to stand with Paul. And then look up in verse 8 of that same chapter, he's telling Timothy, look, Timothy was a timid man. He says, look, you can't be ashamed either, Timothy. Look in verse 8. He says, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But you have to partake of the afflictions of the gospel. And how does he do that? He doesn't have it in him. He's saying you're going to do that through the power of God. That's what he's telling him right there in verse 8. And so what's the point of all this, talking about this? So we're saying this is first century A.D. Christianity, and it was not popular in Paul's day. So these people that initially embraced him and his gospel, they're now deserting him. And the exceptions to that are few. Onesiphorus, he stood out amongst the many. Paul's not naming a dozen people here, is he? He's just naming this guy. And everybody else is deserting him. 
question we have to ask ourselves, and you have to ask yourselves, are you willing to stand out in a crowd like Onesiphorus? Or are you ashamed of the testimony of the Lord? What he's done for you. Taking a stand when it's not popular in a group. We're not getting our heads chopped off. We're not getting beat here. But there's a lot of social pressure, isn't there? In a lot of ways. And people compromise all the time because they're ashamed. Well, I don't want to stir up trouble. They wouldn't listen. Okay, well. Sometimes you need to just take a stand because sometimes that person you think is a hardened heathen, he's paying more attention to what you do and what you say than he's letting on. I guarantee you that. That's right. That's right. Because I was a hardened heathen, and I told Christians, you get out of my face, but in my heart I'm saying, man, everything you're telling me is right, and I know I'm going to go to hell if I don't repent. He didn't know that. And I'm glad he had the boldness. This guy that came up to me one night when I was drunk and get out of my face, man, he's like, I'm just telling you, and he wasn't mean about it, young guy. He's like, God has saved me and all that. And he'll do that for you. And if you don't repent, you'll go to hell. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. I was here in highway to hell driving here, and you're telling me I'm going to hell. <laughs> but hey, I mean, I've never forgot. I wish I knew where he was. I'd buy him dinner. I'd probably buy him a house. <laughs> and Paul's telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord or me, his prisoner. That's what he's saying. Eric Alexander says this. He says, many were offended with Paul faithfulness to Jesus Christ. This is in the day of the Apostle Paul. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ had become a minority movement then. So we like to think, oh man, I wish I could have lived back in the days of the apostles and all that. Hey, it was rough for those guys. They got people deserting left and right. It's the way it was. It's a minority movement and it has always been that way. It has. And today it is a time that the world is becoming very hostile, openly hostile to Christians, and people are deserting those that will stand up for the truth and the gospel. They are. That's happening. And so Paul is saying to Timothy there in chapter 2, verse 1, he's saying, look, you therefore, you Timothy, the emphasis is on the you. It's the first word in the Greek. You therefore, you my beloved son, Timothy. You look at those two examples that I just gave you. Don't fall into the trap of the majority. Don't fall into that. Instead, he says, be like Onesiphorus. Be like him. Don't be ashamed of me. And look what he says. Thou, therefore, you be strong. And what does he mean by strong? He means to be resolved, to be resolute. In other words, I'm not backing off of this. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm not going to lay down my weapon and not fight for my Lord, is what he's telling him. He's saying you've got to be strong, resolved, resolute. And God is saying that to us. You, you, put your name in there. You, therefore, what are you going to do? Which group are you going to follow? Are you going to be ashamed of me, the Lord says? Are you going to be ashamed of my words? Are you going to be ashamed of my ministers, the true ministers? That's what God would say. So how do we apply that? I'd say, hey, we have to be a people that know our convictions, don't we? We have to be based on the word, not on the ones that are deserting the truth. But look what it says in 2 Timothy 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes to Timothy, for the which cause, he says, I also suffer. Because he says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. I suffer these things. He says, nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why? For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And look at verse 13. This is what he tells Timothy, to hold fast the form of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we persuaded? Are you strong? Are you resolved? Are you resolved that you are not going to let go of the truth? Holding fast the form of sound words. Holding fast means that you have got a firm grip on it. And sound words are talking about words that are free from error. They're correct. 
It's a form. It's like when a person's copying, they're looking at this and they're copying it for themselves. And they're saying that is the correct form. And Paul's saying, I've given you that, Timothy. I've spoken that clearly. And, in, and many witnesses have heard it. This isn't some secret gospel that I preached to you, the word I preached. And he's saying, you've heard it. You've seen it. Don't be ashamed of it. And you have got to hold on to it no matter what's going on and no matter who's leaving it around you. And it's happening all the time because I'm saying I hate giving lists like this but it is not popular today to hold on to the sound words of the fear of God I went to a school where they downplay that to where when I gave my testimony and talked about that God put a fear in my heart and I was afraid of hell the teachers like man I don't hear people giving testimonies like that anymore I'm like what do you mean what other kind of testimony do you have <laughs> I mean but the sound words, it's not popular to hold on to. So they may hold on to other things, but we're talking about the whole council. Yeah. You got to hold on to the whole council or what do you have? You've got a distorted message. The fear of God, hell, holiness as defined in the Bible, chastisement, sin, the judgment to come, suffering, trials, afflictions, tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Divorce is adultery. Fornication is defined as living together, illicit sex. Two people living together are fornicators. It doesn't matter what they say, how much they love the Lord, what they profess, where they go to church. The Bible says that a fornicator, don't be deceived. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, they can repent because he said such were some of you. Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of fornicators in here formerly. But you're not in God's kingdom as a fornicator. Uh-uh. You get kicked out of the kingdom when you're a fornicator until and unless you repent. But no one wants to talk about that because everybody knows somebody that's living together. Oh, who wants to spoil the party? But all of what I just said are good, sound, correct, biblical words and concepts that we need to hold on to. And Paul is telling Timothy, there is going to be pressure to compromise. And he says, you therefore, verse one, you therefore, he says, be strong because it is not going to be easy to hold on to the whole counsel of God. Because you're going to be holding on, but they're going to be departing in droves around you. And chapter three, turn over to chapter three, tells us we this isn't going to be unfamiliar either. But this is what it's going to be like for the majority. And especially now, it's going to be more and more and more this way. And look what we have here. Second Timothy three, one. These are departing words from a man that's getting ready to die. It's something to listen to. He says this. No, also, Timothy, I'm adding this on here. That in the last days, perilous times shall come for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They'll have a form of godliness. They'll talk the talk. They'll say the right things, but they deny the power thereof. And what does he say to do? He says, from such turn away. Paul's going to be out of the, off the scene. He's saying, look, I'm going to be a non-factor here in a short period of time. So they've already left me. He's saying, they're going to do the same thing to you, Timothy, when you preach the word. They won't endure sound doctrine. Itching ears, they're going to find these people that tell them what they want to hear, make them feel good in their sin. So he's saying they're going to leave you personally. They're also going to leave the truth. And what we just read there in chapter 3 is they're also going to quit living godly lives. They're going to leave godliness. They're going to be ungodly with no power. And so what is the only hope that we have in here not to be swept away with the great departure because it's going to be bad. And so we have to be strong. Then he tell Timothy that over there in two one. He says, Thou therefore, my son, Timothy, my beloved son, be strong. But he's not saying that in the sense of you gotta have some grit and willpower. In the sense, you know, I'm you need to just get you a tough mindset, Timothy. Or what does he go on to say? You have got to learn to rely on the grace of God that is in 
Because of your union with, that's how we have access to that grace. That's how we stand in that grace. Because we're united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there in verse 1. Because we look at somebody, and I've seen this, you see somebody that you think is really bold because they're bold with people in the world, and you think, oh man, they'll be bold witnessing, and they're not. That's not where it's at. And I'm saying, you see somebody has got this strong character, well man, they'll make a good, strong Christian. Not necessarily. Because Timothy was not a naturally strong-willed type person. He was timid. And Paul knew, like, it's this way with all of us. Because if you think you've got it in yourself because you're a strong person and my parents taught me not to bend and all, if you think that's what's going to get you through, you're deceived. It won't work. Because it's only through, and Paul knew this, it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that Timothy or any of us would find the strength needed. Now look back up there in verses 6 to 8. He's saying, you got a gift, Timothy. You need to stir it up because that's what's going to help you. So we got 2 Timothy 1.6. He says, wherefore, I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Why does he have to do that? For, here's the reason, verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear or cowardice. But what kind of spirit has God given you, Timothy? Power. And then that power needs to be tempered by what? Love. Because power with no love is dangerous, isn't it? Power, love, and of a sound mind, a disciplined mind. And so as a result, he says, verse 8, Be not thou therefore, because of what God's given you, he was tempted. He had to be a timid person. Paul's seeing that. He's trying to encourage him. He says, Thou therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. And how's he going to do it? We said it before, according to the power of God. He was a timid type person, didn't have a strong character naturally, but God can make you that way, can he? But Timothy was also what? Not just that way, he was also not Really, physically, he wasn't strong. Because what did Paul tell him? You need to, don't just drink water. You got to add a little wine in your water, Timothy. Because you're getting sick too easy with that water that's not that purified like we have today, right? He goes, add a little water there because for your stomach's sake, he had stomach problems. You put a little wine in that water. You ain't got so many stomach problems and you're oft, he said, infirmities. So I'm saying Timothy, who's going to take over for Paul, and Paul's trusting him to carry on his work. I'm saying, you think to yourself, man, I'm not much. I'm kind of shy, backwards. I've got a lot of problems. I've got infirmities. So did Timothy. (laughs) Those are the people God uses. Not a strong person in a worldly sense. And we talked about Gideon. You all remember that? We talked about Gideon. The Lord appears to him and says to him, Appears to Gideon, he's hiding from the enemy. He says, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. We're talking about grace to fight. And Gideon's like, who, me? He's looking around, you got the wrong person, Lord. No, not me. (laughs) He's like, my family is poor. Of all the tribes of Manasseh, we're like the poorest ones of all. Not only that, I'm the least of my family. You can't be talking to me. Isn't that what he said? You've got to have the wrong man. But as we taught then, what was it that enabled him? God's grace, isn't it? And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here. And he became a mighty warrior. So we got people in here in battles. Where does that strength and power come? It's not in willpower. It's in what? It's in the grace of God to war against the devil, to hold on to truth, to stay committed, whether you realize it or not, to stay truly committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come from not inside ourselves, but it's going to come from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our union with him. That's where it's going to come from. So when we think of grace, we've always heard it defined as unmerited favor, and that's what it is. But I think what he's talking about here is it's the grace that will give us the sufficiency we need. The grace that will give us the sufficiency we need by the power of the Holy Spirit to do the will of God. So let me ask you, do you think the Apostle Paul, and to ask the question sort of answers it, but do you think he considered himself to be a great spiritual giant? He really didn't. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he said this. He says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, Paul wrote, to think anything as of ourselves. 
And he's saying, when I look at myself, I don't see anything here. There's nothing here that will enable me to do anything for the Lord. That's what Paul's saying when I look at myself. I'm not sufficient of myself to think that this anointing I have, the message I have, the wisdom I have, or the power is coming from myself. Because he goes on to say, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. He says, but our sufficiency is from God. God is the source. (laughs) I like the way one guy put it. You could ask there if you found him and say, Paul, how did you become the man you are? Because he was impressive, wasn't he? I mean, I would have thought so. And Paul's answer would have been, I have nothing, I am nothing, and I mean it. I'm not kidding when I say that. 1 Corinthians 15, here's what Paul said. We could all say this. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. That was Paul's opinion of himself, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by, he says, and this is what we're talking about, the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. But he says, I'm not taking credit for that. Man, I worked hard day and night, labored, toiled, prayed, preached, got beaten, shipwrecked, labored more than they all. He says, but I can't take any credit for that. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He's saying, that's how I was a faithful soldier. And that's the way we'll be faithful soldiers. And Paul would say, you wish you could be like me? I thought that. Man, I wish I could be like him. And he's like, there's nothing about me that's been adequate for anything I've done. Nothing in and of myself. Nothing for the text. I have no grace. I have no sufficiency. And he says, remember, I could tell you some stories. Let me give you my testimony. You think I'm something? You want to be like me? He goes, yeah, I could give you some, some stories about God always had to come to my aid. And give me grace and encouragement. He would say, remember Acts 18? I was in Corinth. And when I was in Corinth, they were upset with me and my preaching. And I was. I was afraid. I was afraid they were going to hurt me. And I've been hurt. It's no fun. I was afraid they were going to hurt me. And the Lord, it says, if you read Acts 18, God came to him in a vision. And this is what God had to tell the great apostle Paul. Be not afraid, but speak. And hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And Paul would say, look, you think I'm something? I needed that word of grace and comfort. I needed that. And that's what enabled me to endure what all came my way. Or he would say, remember Acts 27? And we'll all remember that. He was on a ship that it says, if you read that account, many days it was in a fierce storm. Didn't see the sun. It wasn't letting up. And Luke wrote this. He said, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. And that would include Paul. Paul would have said, man, I thought it was over. And I really didn't like the idea. Would anyone here like the idea of experiencing drowning? And that's what they were facing. He's like, I I really wasn't looking forward to that. But Paul said this, an angel of God appeared to me. And here's these words again. What did that angel say to him? Fear not, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given you all them that sail with you. Wherefore, he says, because of that, and I'm sure he said this part with a smile, wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer. Because I wasn't cheery, but I got that message from an angel of the Lord, and I know it's going to be just like it was said, because he trusted in the word of God. But he still needed that word to come to him, that encouragement to come. I mean, he could have quoted Isaiah to himself, oh, fear thou not, for I am. Oh, no, he needed that encouragement, and we need that at times, don't we? I'd love to have an angel appear to me. And we talked about this Wednesday, but in 2 Corinthians 12, he's saying, yeah, let me give you another part of my testimony. When God showed me that this messenger of Satan was going to buffet me, and I'm thinking, man, I can't handle this. The devil coming at me that way, that is more than I can handle. I'm helpless before him. And God says, I'm going to give you this word too. And he spoke to him and he said, my grace. So we're talking about the grace of God is what comes and gives us the sufficiency to do his will, to fight the battles he gives us to fight. And that's what the Lord said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 
So we are called, all of us in here, to engage the enemy in warfare as soldiers. That's what it says, look in verses 3 to 4. So Paul writes to Timothy, Thou therefore, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, because he says, No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Now how are we going to do all that? It all goes back to verse 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. We're flesh and blood. And I looked up currently, I think it's gone down. Currently, if you melted us down, we are worth a dollar. The elements on the market right now, we're all worth a dollar. And one guy's like, well, if you want to get skinned first, your hide, your skin is probably worth $4. So if you want to really say, technically, if you want to sell your hide and sell your elements, we're worth five bucks. In other words, there's not much to us compared to the devil who is a supernatural spirit. His power is not unlimited, but I'm telling you, if you don't know it, if his fury was unleashed on us, he would destroy us in a second. I'm telling you, you get in the trial and you know that is true. You get demonic spirits coming at you and you can tell if it wasn't for the grace of God, they would literally drive me nuts. Destroyed in a minute. And the thing is, who can stand against him? It ain't going to be $5 you standing against that supernatural being who was next to God, the most powerful being in this universe. Martin Luther, I always like this line, out of a mighty fortress is our God. He says, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. And he says this, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth amongst men is not his equal. None of us are. And we need to realize that. So it's one thing to hear preaching and sing songs about going to stomp on the devil. And it's another thing I'm saying, yeah, fun to sing all that sounds great. It's another thing to be in that pitched battle, isn't it? Because that pitched battle can be fierce and overwhelming. And it's serious. And he's deadly serious about it. And we better be deadly serious about having our armor on and being prayed up. And like Greg's saying, counting and numbering our days and being in the spirit. That's our only hope. You know, back in the Civil War, those young men, they'd hear about, hey, we're going to go fight the North or we're going to go fight the South. And it'd be one thing to talk about the glory of the war and what we're going to do. We're going to rout that enemy. It's one thing to talk about that when you're out on your farm sitting by the well and you haven't had anything happen yet. And it's quite another to experience the actual battle, the fierceness of the enemy coming full force at you. And they said the old rebel yell, if you heard it would pierce through your inside and put a fear in you if you were a northern soldier. And then you're standing there and you're seeing your comrades getting ripped up. They don't generally show you the worst pictures of that. But some of that cannon fodder just rip off limbs, half a body. And you're seeing all that. I don't think those guys, that was the picture they had sitting by the well on their farm. And we need to understand you get in a battle and they will come. It's serious. And many of them, that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about in verse 15. That's what Paul's talking about. These people in Asia, they start experiencing the rocky ground here. Affliction comes because of the word and they fall away immediately. There's no root in them. So how are we going to endure hardness as it says there in verse 3? You, therefore, Timothy, endure hardness. Hardness means hardships, afflictions, suffering that's involved in warfare. And that is not a request by Paul to Timothy or to us. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's not an option. If you've got a New King James Version, that verse 3, it reads this way. It says, you, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So we're exhorted and commanded to endure hardship. As I've said before, this will be about the 10th time, not in ourselves, but by the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's saying there's going to be sacrifice involved. Verse 4, he says, For no man that wars gets himself entangled with the affairs of this life. That's not to happen. 
Getting back to the Civil War, when those guys would fight from the North and the South, both sides, they would be months, some of them years, away from their families, their wives, their children, their farms, their friends, and the comforts of home. The food they ate was disgusting. It was. They didn't have warm beds. And Paul's telling us, you're at war. You can't be involved in the affairs of everyday life like everybody else in the world, can we? Not if we're soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to sacrifice them in order to do what? To please the commander that you serve under. And so he's saying most of them couldn't handle it, and they deserted in droves, just like they did during the Civil War. Bunches of them left. That was a major problem during that war. And all those Christians in Asia, they're like, we're not selling into this kind of life. Not going to do it. And they were leaving. And Paul's telling Timothy and us, he says, you need to make the sacrifices necessary to be a good soldier. Well, what does that involve? Fasting, giving, praying, studying the word, helping others, trusting God in trials. That's when the bullets are really flying, aren't they? The arrows, the fiery darts, crucifying your flesh, doing things, the sacrifices, you're doing things you don't naturally want to do. I didn't do any of those things before I became a Christian. It wasn't part of my normal life at all. But when you join the army, you got some things you got to do daily, don't you? <laughs> That's part of it. We're commanded to be strong in the Lord, commanded. Strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, commanded to put on the whole armor of God because he has called us to fight, not a physical war, but Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we will glorify him, our Lord and Savior, not as we throw down our weapons and run and desert the army, but as we put on our armor and fight the good fight of faith. Dedicated to putting on that armor, truth as our belt. God's truth. This tells me who the Lord is, what he wants me to do. It doesn't matter what anybody else says. Righteousness. He is all my righteousness, and he's also called me as a result of that to live a righteous life. We are as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and most people are AWOL on this one, and that is to share the gospel with others, to look and pray for opportunities. That is our responsibility as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to carry our shield of faith, trusting in the love and the goodness of God. That's what quenches all the doubt and unbelief of the enemy he's sent in your way. Wearing that helmet of salvation, the knowledge, I have eternal life. Do to me what you will. I've got eternal life. Not wondering about it anymore. Swinging our sword. Got to be on the offensive. Confessing the word the promises of God, being on the attack. Isn't that what David did? Everybody else, King Saul, who had been anointed to be king to fight the Lord's battles, where was he when Goliath would come in that valley? He, it says, was shaking in his tent. Everybody's afraid. And when David comes on the scene, he is like, who is this filthy Philistine? Who does he think he is? To defy the armies of the living God. He tries to put on Saul's armor. This isn't going to work. He goes out there with his sling, and the devil through Goliath is mocking him. Who is this little insufficient person? What does he think? He's, he's coming out with sticks. He's mocking him. And David, as the story goes, he didn't say, wait a minute. I, I should have thought a little harder about this. I got myself in a situation here. We're saying if you're a soldier, you've got to attack. And it says, if you read the account, he ran at him. As Tom would always do, <laughs> a lot better than me. He'd sling that thing and hit him right in the forehead because God, by his grace, bam, was with David. And that's what he says he'll do for us. Not shrinking in fear of what the enemy's going to do next. Not dropping our swords and retreating. We got some ex-Marines in here. What's their motto? Semper Fidelis. You know what that means? Always faithful. And the reason they have that motto is there has never been a mutiny amongst the U.S. Marines. Never. Never been a mutiny. And what's their little slogan now? The few, the proud, the Marines. And they've got their slogan, don't they? And my suggestion for our little slogan would be, 
we are the just. And the just shall live by faith. Because that's biblical, isn't it? Amen. <laughs> the Bible says, now the just shall live by faith. We talked about that. But if any man draw back from the battle, my soul, God says, shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back unto perdition. But this is us. But we are of them that believe. We don't draw back. We believe to the saving of the soul. Amen. Because why? Those that draw back, guess who has no pleasure in them? The commander. Hey, thought you were going to be up here in the battle with me, fighting. I enlisted. You said you would. I told you I'd give you everything you need. I fully equipped you. I've guaranteed you victory. And why are you running away? Come back, is what the commander would say. My soul has no pleasure in that. I did everything I could to equip you for the battle. No reason to leave. But he's saying, Paul's saying, look, we are those that endure and live by faith. Because look what it says back in verse 4 at the end of that. No man, we talked about the first part, no man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. And why is that? Here's the purpose, that he may please him who has chosen him. God has chosen you to be what? It says right there, to be a soldier. So we live, we fight we hold on to the word because we want to hear the one who has chosen us to be soldiers. One day we will see him face to face to hear him say what? Well done, thou good and faithful. Semper Fidelis, always faithful. We can beat the Marines by the grace of God. Good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joys of the Lord. And don't you desire as a Christian to desire to hear that from the Lord? I mean, I do. Now, back to the Civil War. I mean, this is Civil War Day, I guess. I, I actually read quite a bit about it a few years back. I was just interested in that stuff. But they had what was called the Battle of the Wilderness, and it was the first battle, 1864, between Generals Grant and Lee. And on the second day of that battle, the Union forces, it looked like they were going to drive right through the heart of the Confederate center. And Lee's watching that, and he is getting nervous and worried. And the way it's reported, suddenly John Gregg's Texas, the Texans, they hurried up to plug the hole. And as they're coming up there, Lee sees them coming. It says he raised himself up in his stirrups. And he says, who are you, my boys? And they said, we're Texas boys, what they answered him back. And when he heard that, it says he took off his hat and waved. And he says, hurrah for the Texans. He says, the Texans always move them. And that General Gregg heard Lee say that, and he told the Southern soldiers, he says, Attention, Texas, the eyes of General Lee are upon you. Forward. And one of those guys that was in that announced, one of the Southern soldiers, he says, Never before in my lifetime did I ever see such a scene as was enacted when Lee pronounced those words, Texans always move them. He said a yell rent the air that must have been heard for miles around. And here's the dedication those southern soldiers had to Lee. One of them said, a courier said, he goes, I would charge hell itself for that old man. And the Texans went up there and they plugged the hole and they held it and they lost the majority of their troops in that. They paid a price. They were willing to pay that price for him. Worldly soldiers can be so dedicated to an earthly general, wanting General Lee to be pleased with them, hearing those words of encouragement, and they're willing to die for him, saying they'd do anything for him because he's their leader. And we, how much more should we be willing to pay any cost to please our Lord and Savior, who loved us, as we talked about Wednesday, who loved me, and gave himself for me because General Lee was not sinless. He wasn't spotless. He wasn't the eternal son of God who willingly laid down his life out of love. He didn't do that. And they were willing to die for him. Don't you long in your heart to hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, well done, thou faithful soldier? You were valiant, endured hardships by my grace, but you did it. Enter thou into your reward. 
We can hear him like General Lee said as we're going through a trial. Can't you hear him say, only believe? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Can we hear him say that to us in our spirit as we're going out in battle? Look over here in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. Look what it says. Paul, we're saying he's getting ready to die. He says in verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For I am now ready to be offered. I'm ready. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And because of that, verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, he'll give me at that day. And not to me only, but to everyone here in this room that qualifies by this, but to all them also that what? Love his appearing. It's for everyone else here that loves his appearing. That's what it says. So God, by his grace, will give us the strength we need to remain faithful if we will just come humbly to him and seek it. Hebrews 4, 16 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what about this hymn that we used to sing? He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known to man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So what do our commander do? What are we talking about today? He'll give us the grace to fight, to endure, to receive the crown. And when he does it, we're going to see him with a nodding smile of approval when he says those words. We're not going to be seeing him in his wrath and judgment. No way. That's what we'll receive when we one day see him face to face. So what's the message today of 2 Timothy 2 that we're looking at? That we are, every one of us in this room, called to be soldiers. We're called to be soldiers, and great God will give us the grace to fight. Amen? That's what he'll do. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for your promise that your grace will be sufficient for us and that you've called us to be a soldier. You'll never leave us alone, Lord. You'll give us all that we need to be successful in our battles. And through your grace and through your power, we can swing our swords, Lord. Stand on truth. Resist the enemy. And your word says he will flee. And we thank you, Lord, for all the promises you've given us, all the promises that you'll be with us and you'll give us sure victory if we just will stay with you. Amen. I just ask you to make us faithful soldiers today. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.